Hey guys, it's your girl Karen. Welcome to Rational in Portland, where we say everything you can't say in Portland. Portland is getting more rational though, Oregon specifically. We're lifting our indoor and school mask mandate statewide on March 11th at 11.59 p.m. Just in time for Biden's State of the Union, the lunatic fringe lefty holdouts are lifting mask mandates so we can declare victory over COVID and get a lot of standing O's. Seriously, though, we'll talk about what this means later at the end of the episode, but I want to get to my very favorite part of this episode, and that is our guest, Nancy Rommelman. Nancy is an accomplished journalist. She lived here in Portland for 15 years. Many of you may remember her name floating around in the press. She was a pretty well-known person. She was born in Manhattan, grew up in Brooklyn. She moved to LA. She was a star journalist there. That's where she started that really taking off in her journalistic career. She has been a freelance journalist for about 20 years. She wrote for Bon Appetit for 10 years. She wrote such an incredible piece about John Wayne Gacy for LA Weekly that it was turned into a small book, which you can buy on Amazon. I highly recommend it. It's great for crime junkies like me. She also wrote a piece for LA Weekly that you should check out called Who She Took With Her, which is very moving, very nuanced piece about a homeless alcoholic white woman named Nancy Shorn, who grew up in a well-to-do family from the East Coast. She had American Standard plumbing money. She was basically an heiress. And she was permanently injured in a catastrophic accident with her black homeless boyfriend, who was a crack addict, a California native, and had always been poor. Nancy will explain in this episode that she thought she knew what the story was about, black, white, crack alcohol, east, west, poor, rich. But then she dug deeper and found out there was much more to that story. Stay tuned and we'll dig into that make sure you read the story for yourselves because it's really an incredible piece from LA Weekly by Nancy Rommelman. After living in LA, Nancy and her husband moved to Portland where they raised Nancy's daughter and Nancy learned what it was really like to live in the bubble of Portland when she wrote a restaurant review. Now she had been writing food and restaurant pieces for years. She wrote a restaurant review about the once iconic Portland restaurant Sauce Box. You know, the one that was located across the street from Mary's Club, that iconic strip joint on Broadway that Courtney Love danced at. Mary's Club has since, of course, moved. But Nancy wrote a bad review about Saucebox. This was around 2005 when you weren't allowed to criticize Portland restaurants that weren't big box chains because we were becoming a restaurant city. And the idea was if you weren't for all of us, you're against all of us. I still think Portland adheres to a singular narrative that most people don't dare go against, except on this podcast, of course, and Nancy and I dig into that. But anyway, Nancy had the balls to do a bad review of Saucebox for Willamette Week, one of the local weekly papers here in Portland. You would have thought she carpet bombed the entire city. People were so aghast that anyone would do that, particularly the owners of Saucebox. It was a very public melt meltdown by one of the owners and relatively soon afterwards saucebox went out of business i was young in 2005 i was living in the pearl working downtown as i've continued to do for nearly 20 years now and having a blast back then not so much anymore but i enjoyed saucebox if not its food just its scene quite a bit it had a dj and it was really fun for people in their 20s and early 30s but i applaud nancy for having the balls to voice a different point of view. Nancy wrote a great book 
called To the Bridge, a true story of motherhood and murder about Amanda Stott Smith, who threw her two children over the Selwood Bridge in Southeast Portland. The four-year-old boy died and the seven-year-old girl lived. I have the book. It's totally engrossing, particularly if you're a true crime fan like me. Nancy's husband started a coffee roasting company here in Portland. It became incredibly successful. It was called, a lot of you must have visited it. It was so good. It was called Ristretto Roasters. Ristretto branched out into a number of locations, one of which was in the Schoolhouse Electric Building. It was a beautiful coffee shop with really delicious pastries. But then Nancy learned that you can't voice a different point of view in Portland once again, when she started a YouTube series called Me Neither with Leah McSweeney, who you can now find on The Real Housewives of New York. You won't find the Me Neither series on YouTube anymore, but it was incredibly nuanced discussion about the Me Too movement, which Portland couldn't handle in any way, shape, or form. Nancy and Leah actually discussed topics that ended up aging well over time, like the fact that one of the faces of the Me Too movement, Ozzy Argento, was allegedly a statutory rapist, and her alleged victim had been quietly paid off by one of Ozzy's boyfriends, celebrity chef Anthony Bourdain. This is discussed in the documentary about Anthony Bourdain. Or they would talk about how Aziz Ansari probably isn't the same kind of predator as R. Kelly, but because different points of view aren't tolerated in Portland by the loudest voices in the room, Nancy and Ristretto Roasters were canceled All the Ristretto locations closed, and Nancy moved back to New York, where she now lives in Chinatown. Nancy has continued to flourish in her journalistic career in New York. She's just really hitting, she may just be hitting her stride now. I mean, she certainly is, just seems to be doing more and more excellent reporting. In fact, as we discuss on the podcast, she's probably headed to Ukraine. She wrote an opinion piece that was published in the New York Times about Kenosha. She visited Portland numerous times to do on-the-ground reporting about Portland riots for Reason magazine. One of the most popular articles she wrote for Reason is about how Antifa doesn't let journalists film them and why so many journalists comply with that. She's written book reviews for the Wall Street Journal, something she did before she moved back to New York. She's been published in Newsweek, and she started a... Read her article in Newsweek about Don McNeil being fired from the New York Times. It's great. She started a media company with Matt Walsh from Reason Magazine. He's also on the Fifth Column podcast, one of my favorites. Her media company with Matt is called Paloma Media. Paloma Media has a website and a Twitter feed. They also have a podcast and a YouTube channel. Nancy also has a Substack that you should subscribe to. And in addition to recording the Paloma Media podcast in her beautiful recording studio in her apartment in New York... That recording studio is also used by the guys from the Fifth Column to record the Fifth Column podcast. That's the fantastic podcast with Michael Moynihan, Matt Welch, and Camille Foster. And like Matt Welch said in episode 346 of the Fifth Column, where they have guests Jeffrey Sachs on, we can't trust people reporting about Portland anymore, not the Oregonian, except for Nancy Rommelman. We just don't have the same level of trust in media anymore. And now let's hear from the woman we can trust, Nancy Rommelman. Nancy, it's so good to have you. Last night I read your piece, Who She Took With Her in LA Weekly, and I found it incredibly moving and fantastic. You know what? That is one of my my favorite pieces. I mean, it's it's devastating, but it was um I think it was a necessary piece to write. 
I felt so many mixed feelings for her. You wrote it so beautifully. It was like, I wanted her to succeed. But then after after you talked to the husband, I knew she wouldn't. And just the way he tried for 13 years and then said she she just has never wanted to she's got standards for everybody but herself you know what was so funny i still think of nancy sometimes when um and i know that i'm working hard and i love it because i it's good for me to work hard it's good for the world it's good content in the world but when i'm like not and i see my friends hustling i think of nancy safanov and i think of her husband saying i was out at school all day and I thought she was too, but no, yeah. she was just like home. And I think like, Nancy, don't be Nancy Safnoff. Don't be Nancy Safnoff. Don't just work. Hustle. Um, yeah, I'm very, uh, I don't, I don't like the word proud at all, like to apply to myself. I love, I'm proud of other people. I don't feel proud about myself. I feel good. I feel like I've accomplished something, but that is a piece I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased with. I well, you think, should I mean, be proud. Yeah, you I should know, be it's a proud. Weird thing. Yeah, it's a good piece though. I thank you for for flagging that one because it's just not you know I wrote it whatever twelve years ago or whatever it was now or more and you you just don't you know twenty years ago and you don't you know these things don't really come around anymore. I mean I've got it on my website, but yeah, and I'll tell you something else about that piece if we're talking about yeah that. please. So one thing about journalism is you can never you can never pre-decide the story. You can never be like, oh, I know what this story is going to be and then go in and basically fill it in like a coloring book, right? You, you've got the outline in your mind and then you colored it. The story has to lead you. But when I did hear about this story, I had some coordinates and I thought, okay, white, black, East Coast, West Coast, booze, crack. I thought it was, you know, it sort of was, you know, they're from different places. They're different races. They're, you know, different uh, addictions and yet they meet the same fate. Well, and I met the husband who had never spoken to anyone about this. And it was like popping a balloon and he didn't stop talking for an hour and a half and, and what had happened. And I realized the story was not what I thought at all. It was who she took with her. And that's the, really the beauty when you are an honest reporter, not trying to fit your narrative into some form that, I don't know, you think your readers might want or you think, you know, your editors are demanding let the story go where it's going to go, and it will blow you away. It it will. And so um, I'm I'm lucky to have written for a place for the weekly for you know 15 or 20 years that that not only wanted that they kind of demanded it, and that's how I cut my teeth. So thank you for reading the piece. I appreciate it. I do think that if more people did this kind of work about for you know cities that have been plagued with homeless crises, it would be really insightful and it would help us understand who the people in the tents are how they got there how their relatives feel about this to the extent they have relatives what what plans do they have for I mean and you just did such a nuanced job and a thorough job you just give me you just gave me an idea so um as your readers will hear um I started a media site last November called palomamedia.com Right, and you started that with Matt Welch, right, for Reason Magazine and Fifth Column. Reason Magazine and the Fifth Column, exactly. And um, one of the reasons we wanted to do it, besides just wanting to kind of put out some more work, me more than him because he's he's pretty busy with his other stuff, is that he and I have both been journalists for, you know, 20-plus years, and we've got these enormous, enormous backlog, backlists of stories. And not that you're 
obviously not going to rerun most of them, but something like this. This is an 8,000-word feature that, in in a sense, is what you call in journalism evergreen. It's not going to go away. This is an issue. Homelessness and drug use and alcoholism is, is as much an issue today as it was um, when I wrote the story, maybe even more because we're experiencing, you know, fentanyl is creating this massive crisis, and we've got some very, very blue cities at this point that feel that the compassionate thing to do is to allow people to use on the streets, um, but you gave me an idea. I have, um, we're so we're reporting on Ukraine every single day, yeah. and one of my co-editors said to me today, he's like, you know, it's pretty brutal, it's a pretty brutal schedule to do like one or two long detailed posts a day. So I was like, you know, we don't have to be completely comprehensive every day. Let me run something else on Wednesday. I think I'm going to I think I'm going to run it and I'll put a little lead talking about like, you know, what's going on in San Francisco and Portland and then uh, and then run some stories so people can read it. That would be so brilliant. For it. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I'm so excited. I'm so I'll excited you know. to read pieces like that. that there oh, aren't thanks. any. Well, You'll be the only one doing that kind of work. There was a time when this is, you know, when magazines and newspapers ran seven, 8,000 word stories, and that's how I came up as a journalist. That's what I know how to do, one of the things I know how to do. Um, and people do still write long form. They do. I mean, you can you can go on a lot of websites and find it, but it just isn't, it kind of isn't monetized in the same way, and or you have to create your own mediums to get the message out. So that's what we've done. Um which is super fun. And, you know, people can do it. Um, it's a matter of getting people's eyeballs over there. You know, I'm not, I'm not Huffington Post or my friend Barry Weiss's site. I, I don't have that kind of readership yet. But you know what, after this podcast, I'm sure I'm going to. Yeah, Paloma Media, dudes, get on over there, subscribe, you can become a Patreon member. And maybe if you do here, I'm announcing something here, I haven't made it public yet. I may on Wednesday night be flying to Ukraine to do oh, a little recording. Well, so you guys great. can help me get over there. You can uh, become a Patreon member or go to my Substack and uh, and and head on over there. Anyway, yeah, we're trying to. It's, I. Everybody says this. Everybody who loves their job says this that they have the best job in the world. But I do think I have the best job in the world to be able to go out and find stories and tell stories. And if people can get over there and read them, then all the better. And Paloma, I know Paloma has a Twitter feed because I subscribe yeah. to that. And where uh, else yeah, can we Paloma find Media. you? Is it palomamedia.com? Palomamedia.com. And then Twitter, uh, at Paloma Media. Uh, and then um, you, I have a Substack called, I mean, you put in Substack, Nancy Rommelman, but it, it's called Make More Pie. And I do a lot of writing over there, too. I uh, actually started that before we started Paloma Media. So I'm doing some cross-posting, but right now most of the efforts are going into Paloma Media because we've got, you know, several people working there. We're going to have some more. We're doing a redesign. It's, it's just fun. Um it's fun to provide new content every day. And we also like, we want it to be fun and kind of delightful and a little bit of jackass humor. Like we don't want you to get up in the morning and just be like, Oh my God, I want to smash my face through the screen. <laughs> like, let's, you know, let's give you some news. Let's give it to you straight. Let, let's give it to you in a way that you're like, you know what? I feel that this is trustworthy. That's um, you know, we call it independent journalism for lack of a you know better term, but it is, you know, we're not really on anybody's side of the fence and I'm not, bringing anybody's message on the tip of a spear. I'm not. I'm, I'm telling you what I'm seeing and what makes sense to me. I've done so much reporting from, from Portland. People find me and they will say, listen, you know, I liked what you wrote, but have you looked at this or have you thought about this? And it's incredibly helpful and I love it. So my DMs are open over on Twitter or I'm easy to find online. I'm, I'm happy to hear from people. Uh, tell us what the stories that you're not hearing, let's say from Portland, your, your audience is Portland. Let me know. I will look into it. I will come back. I'm going to be coming back out to the West Coast within 
probably within six weeks to do some more reporting out there. So um, hit me up with uh, with tips, as they say, or just to say hello and um, help me round out the story. So on Twitter, do you get a raft of harassment? I mean, you're you're in the middle of this these stories, so to speak. You're not Fox News saying. Antifa is destroying Portland and it's going to come to a city near you. But on the other hand, you're not uh, the New York Times or MSNBC saying mostly peaceful protest while the fire roars behind you. So yep. what, are, do you get a lot of harassment on Twitter from, from both sides or one in particular, or is it pretty quiet? Uh, no, well, when I was in the thick of reporting, I got tons of harassment. Um, I would say mostly from the left because the narrative I was presenting was not the sort of common mainstream media narrative. Um, and I, I think for the most part, you know, the, the liberal media was reporting it as a mostly peaceful uh, incident. And if not, I mean, they were acknowledging that, you know, buildings were being bashed in and set fire to, but it was like, look, you know, Trump's forces are there, Trump's goons in air quotes. And, you know, how do you expect people to react? I get it. I mean, trust me, I get it. But, you know, when what was just kind of astounding to me is, you know, you have, let's say, let's take one of the first incidents, right? They marched across the Burnside Bridge. It was the first protest for, for against the killing of George Floyd, like 10,000 people, like the cops turned back and they, they couldn't even, it was just so many people. They marched through. This was like an amazing show of like, we're not going to put up with this. And I, fully support there. I was not there for that. And then, you know, everybody else went home, everybody went home to their families or whatever they were going to do. And, you know, the 200 people stayed and they set fire to Justice Center and they threw office furniture around. And I interviewed a woman, an officer who'd been in the basement. Meanwhile, she's like, her relatives are calling her madly saying, get out of the building. It's on fire. And she's actually checking in prisoners. So that was a story I thought was important to tell. Now, when I would say, well, you know, the peaceful protesters or whatever, they went home and these people, they're like, you're, how can you, how can you say this about the protest movement? How can you say, how can you accuse these people of doing anything but like either exercising free speech or whatever? I'm like, well, because that's not what they're doing. Okay. They're committing vandalism. They are, you know, setting things on fire. I understand you're mad. I understand you're mad that Trump has sent people to the city. I, come on. I totally get it. Did did the federal forces cover themselves in glory? No, of course they didn't. But if you tell me, I stood in front of that court, in front of the federal courthouse, many, many nights and watched the protesters, you know, rah, rah, scream, 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 and then peel off. And then the same core crew, whether, you know, 200 people or 600 people or 2,000 people, attack the building for hours, hours. Growing things, setting things on fire, shining little lasers, so trying to blind the people inside, you know, dumping buckets of feces, just like on and on and on and on and on. And finally, federal forces would like shoot out some tear gas or they would shoot out their rubber bullets. People got hurt. Yes. But it's like, do you, so what are they supposed to do? Just sit there and do nothing while you continue to deface the building and really like breaking into the building? People are like, well, they shouldn't have been if they weren't there. We wouldn't have been doing this in the first place. But that's not true because they were doing this for weeks before federal, federal forces got there. So people did not like that I was reporting that. They somehow thought that by pointing out 
that, you know, um, the activists were also the aggressors, I was, um, you know, I was against activism. I'm like, can you not hold two thoughts in your mind? Can you not hold two thoughts that you have a lot of people that are peaceful and then you have some that are not? It's not one or the other. But people became so addicted to the fight and the feeling that they were right and the feeling that they were, you know, changing the world for the better and that we hate Trump and we're going to show our hatred. And as I've written many times, it gave (laughs) – these are young people. They've been inside. They haven't been able to go out because of COVID. Maybe they've lost their jobs. Maybe they can't go to bars anymore. But they can be in the streets fighting for a better world and basically like having this nightly spree of relief. And they also got identity, all right? The national press was there every day and every night filming them. They were in the public eye. And the international press, I think. And the international press. They were, they, Portland was number one. Okay, Portland, you know, Portland's a nice city, but it's not usually number one in anything, okay? Taylor Swift doesn't even play here. What? Taylor Swift doesn't even play here. We don't have a stadium. we don't have a, we don't have, you know, a film industry. We don't have, you know, we're just, it's, it's, a, it's a smaller place. You know what? Portland was number one in this. And they stayed that way for a long time. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that most people um, have gone home. And I think, um, I think the people that remain that are doing this to me are rudderless. Um, I keep asking people, what are you building? What have you built? Like a coffee cart, a daycare center, or whatever, anything. Um, I'm told uh, two things. One, I'm told, no, Nancy, come on, that's, that's not for them to do. They're not about the building. They're only about the unbuilding. That's, you know, leave the building to someone else. Okay. And then I'm told, well, what we have built is we've kept the white supremacists out of Portland. And I'm like, okay, now I understand that Oregon has a pretty crappy history in some ways when it comes to its black population. That was a long time ago, but okay, I get it. I get that you want to make up for past things. Got it. I also understand that you have far right groups around Portland, in Oregon, in Idaho, and that occasionally some of these people are out of their freaking minds and violent. Having said that, Having been on the ground, probably, I won't exaggerate, two dozen, three dozen nights, marches, protests, rallies, in my experience, I saw right-wing or far-right groups roll through three times. Uh, once Patriot Prayer, a couple of times Patriot Prayer guys, two times Proud Boys. Uh, the one of them, nothing really happened. It was a lot of LARPing, live action role playing on the Willamette. This is 2019. Everybody left. Nothing happened. I saw some altercations at a Back the Blue rally. This was in late August or early September of 2020. And then the Proud Boys kind of got marched out of town as the as Antifa followed them with um, Tom Petty song blaring from a boombox, Won't Back Down. Um, and I covered. Uh, Jay Danielson, who was the Patriot Prayer me- member who was shot in the chest by Michael Reinhold, a self-proclaimed um, you know, pro-Antifa guy. He was, in fact, just a Yahoo. I don't think he really was with anybody except his own mind of, of creating a spectacle. But if those are the cases that I can document, of course, there could be more. 
but we had 100 nights running of violence in the city, a break for a week for the fire fight, for the fires, um, the wildfires, and then right back at it through the election and on into uh, 2021 and the Red House and continuing, you know, New Year's Eve. Is there really, are you really fighting um, the right wing groups that are coming or are you, have you created this phantom so that you can have something to fight against? Because I would actually, I'm actually interested in finding some data that tells us like the amount of in the millions or maybe billions of dollars in damage that we've had to Portland from the riots and the just smash and bash and fires and the, the federal business and et cetera, committed by left-wing activists versus that committed by right-wing activists. And you know it's going to be 100 to 1 or, or 1,000 to 1. Um, but it doesn't matter what I say because people believe they need to believe in this enemy. If this enemy does not exist to the extent and every single day, then what's your movement about? What are you doing? Why, why are you smashing windows? What's, what's going on here? Um, they need enemies. And I, I find that to be, I find that to be for young people to have this be their, um, how they're spending their youth. Um, I understand it. It's, it's, you know, it's exciting. It's like, it's like getting inside a mosh pit, you know, it's, it's fun. Um, I wrote a piece where I went, um, I followed around a, a trans gal that went undercover with Antifa to, um, kind of check out what they do. And she came back to me, she says, I got to tell you, Nancy, when we were there while they were like setting fire to the police unit, it was fun. Of course it's fun. It's fun to break shit. Okay. Sorry. I don't know. Lots of yeah, here. no, go for it. Um, yeah, but, um, but. I, I would also say, I had a friend visiting the other day, he's, um, he's 33, he lives in Portland, he's like, you know, I went out marching once, I thought it was important for, you know, the very early on, and then he's like, and then all that violence, he's like, it just got boring. I mean, can you imagine doing this night after night after night after night after night, and this is how you're going to spend your early 20s? I, I just, I, I, I would wish for them really more delight in their life. I really, really would. I would like them to, like, look to the horizon and say, hey, look at all these other things that we could do. And um, maybe they are. I think most of them are. We don't We don't see the groundswell of people doing it like we did in 2020 and 2021. Um, so, you know, let's see. Do you think a lot of people were from out of town and went home? No, I, well, you know, sure. I mean, you know, definitely when Trump was there, you definitely had people that were coming in solidarity. And you know what? I get that. I, I totally get that. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go to Ukraine on Wednesday night, maybe because, well, I'm going to go as a reporter, but I mean, this was where things were happening. Sure. Um, I, do, I don't think it was the case that you're having like busloads and busloads and busloads and busloads of activists coming across the country, but I definitely think you probably had a couple thousand people make their way and yeah, they went home. But I think you had a lot of people, you have a lot of young people in Portland. Portland's a young city, you know, and they didn't have other things to do. It was COVID. So I think people that like normally probably wouldn't have done this definitely came out to participate like in a peaceful way to be there. I mean, I was, I don't know if you were in front of the, uh, the justice center and, and the federal building any nights. I mean, I was there one night when, when Wheeler was speaking. So they were, oh my God. Was that when so he was tear gassed that night later yeah. that night? Yeah. 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 Uh, and he was booed, wasn't he? Yeah, Cause he yes, said yes, he wouldn't yes. defund the police. And... Oh, it was booed. And they were chanting, uh, what was it? Uh, fuck you, Ted. What? Yeah, something. I don't remember what they were mm-hmm. chanting. I have it written down somewhere. Oh, fuck Ted Wheeler. I mean, we're talking 
you know, my editor said to me, are you sure it was 4,000 people? I'm like, yeah, I don't count. But like eyeballing it, 4,000 people. Oh, at know. least. And, 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 you know, these, most of these people went home. No, that's fine. They're totally, completely and 100% support their right to be out there and screaming and part of this movement and yelling at their mayor. Sure, do it. I, what I, what I think is not probably in anyone's best interest is continually lighting the same buildings on fire every night. I just think, I think for the people doing it, it's just a bore. Like, please do something. Take all of this incredible energy that you have. Young people are, are awesome at having lots of energy. And just try to build something instead of breaking things. That would be my hope. I have actually talked to some of these people who claim to be affiliated with Antifa and seem intelligent and curious and they won't give me their real names and they won't allow me to name them even if they gave me their real names because I think they're afraid of feeling as if or being perceived as if they're betraying their comrades. But these are nice, interesting kids individually. And I think they have an argument to that. They would say Sarah E. Anarone running for mayor against Wheeler and, and getting the kind of support, shocking amount of support yeah. that she got, yeah. declaring herself to be an Antifa member, wearing a skirt covered in murderous dictators. Now, I think that was before the campaign, but that was, you know, yeah, all over the internet. And it was certainly an article of clothing that she enjoyed and had fun wearing because she had, you know, she wore it to some sort of event where she knew she'd be photographed. So it wasn't yeah, like, provocative. she wasn't yeah, like sitting sure. in a cafe, drinking a cup of coffee and some, some, somebody ambushed her and took some pictures of her. And, and I, she, I think they would say she's an example of, of what we did try to build, what we may still try to build. You know, we, we could have gone mainstream. We, we could have built something through a government. It, it's so, it's like where right meets left. Isn't it funny? They're like so left, they're right. It's like, but they're, they don't want government. <laughs> Right. So. Right. So they're the libertarians, right? Right. It's fascinating. <laughs> it's like they don't want government. They're not they're They are definitely not big government Democrats. I mean, believe me, if they were, they wouldn't have destroyed the Democratic headquarters after Biden was elected. They hate Biden. I mean, they hate all those oh, people. They hate I Hillary know. Clinton. For most people who uh, do want some level of government and aren't anarchists, I think they came scarily close to electing the first Antifa mayor in the country. They did. They came extremely close. And I think if uh, Teresa Radford had not been the write-in candidate, uh, she might have won. Because I think Radford took between 11 and 12% of the vote, if I'm not mistaken. I will tell you, and I, I'm telling tales out of school a little bit here, but you know, when I first started reporting in Portland, that was July 2020, I was certainly aware of Yana Rowan, and I I met her um, campaign manager Greg McKelvey previously a year before at an event, and I found him to be very smart. And um, and and I think he uh, is smart. He has I, a law degree. I enjoyed talking to him, and um, I contacted him and said um, I'd love to interview her, and he said great. And uh, we set up a Zoom uh, because it was COVID, and um, they never showed up. They never showed up at all. Wow, not even and a call. 
nothing. I'm and surprised. I, I, you know, five or six times I got in touch with them and nothing. And I think it was because I think it was because the reporting I was doing for Reason, you know, first of all, people think Reason is like, they're like, oh, my God, that libertarian publication. First of all, I'm like, I'm not a libertarian. I mean, I'm kind of libertarian adjacent, I'd say. But also, it's like, have you read, have you read Reason? Because if you did, you might be pleasantly surprised at how really, you know, they they cover a breadth of issues and they're very open-minded and kind of funny and like, you know, really, really good, solid writing. It's not doctrinaire. I mean, at all. And I think people sometimes in, in places they, they hear libertarian for some reason, they think like to the right of Republican or something, which I, I don't think it's like that at all. But anyway, I think they probably saw the kind of reporting I was doing and just decided I was not the person that they wanted to um, have a conversation with, which is a shame because you know, if you if she's serious, if this is your friend, you know, the or the, the Antifa person who said, look, this, you know, we came very close. This is what we want. Well, if that's true, I think that you had, you do have to talk to the press a little bit. Well, you don't have to. Yeah, they don't want to do that. that you're, if you say you're going to, I think you should show up or, you know, or, you know, at least respond after I write five or six emails. Like, what happened? Can we reschedule? So I can't say I found that to be very mature. But maybe, maybe that's not me. Maybe they just, that's their way of saying we're not interested in you. So, so be it. I mean, I, maybe, I mean, you're a journalist. I'm not, I'm just a curious trial lawyer who lives in Portland and is trying to figure out what's going on. But I, I haven't, although I've made, formed some relationships with some of these, I, I, they call themselves Antifa, I guess they call mm-hmm. themselves comrades, um, some of the Antifa-related, Black Bloc-related people who are, I think are smart and interesting, and they won't come on the podcast. They don't want to identify themselves. They certainly don't want no. me to give out their name because they don't want to be no, pilloried not. by their community for talking to me. And that's the first rule of Fight Club, right? You don't talk about Fight Club. Well, um, and it's like your Reason Magazine piece, which was fantastic about you're not allowed to film in Portland. That was probably so. I've written, I've written, I don't know, twenty eight pieces about Portland, and I think about sixteen or eighteen of them for reason. Oh, more, I don't know, a lot. That was the one that just caught fire, and and I think it. You know, we talked at the beginning of this podcast about like why do you why do you read certain places? Like why is it that Matt Welch would say, okay, but I trust Nancy. Well, of course he's a friend of mine. Okay, but people. Okay. If people want to only hear one message, like they've got in their mind, like, you know, Trump is the best, he's the greatest guy ever, they will only seek out information that confirms that, right? Most people are not like that. They're they're not, you know, total Antifa or Trump people. I think you're they, right. I think that's can, why Joe Rogan has so many listeners. Right. You people can kind of smell when something is true. They just like they don't even know necessarily that they, they weren't reading something that was true, but nothing kind of like hit. When I wrote that piece about you're not allowed to film, which explained how the narrative was being crafted by people on the ground, including activists, including, you know, Antifa, it was just bingo. Everyone's like, that's it. That's it. That's why I have not been, that's why I felt weird about the coverage. I didn't know why I felt weird about the stories that were coming out of Portland or other places. Now I know. And it went bananas on online. Everybody, and you know, that's very nice, obviously, for a journalist. But people that I like really admire at big publications are like, okay, that's. And it was 
it's true. It's like we live in a world now where you can you can film the rev- revolution, and this is what people are doing, and they are crafting the narrative they want you to see. So that was a, going all the way back to to answering your question about whether I got crap. When I published that piece, I got so much crap from the left, and we're talking thousands of of messages. I'm like. Blah, blah, blah. Can you believe it? And then they took my picture. They posted it online and said a million things. Actually, there were some pretty funny memes that they had of, of, of me, which was whatever. But Well, um, they're creative. I mean, they are creative. Oh, so creative. Oh, my God. So creative. And funny. Creative, funny. Um, you know, every night the direct actions when they meet in a park, right, at 7 o'clock at wherever park. But the flyers that they have, you yeah. know, they, they make them the day before. They're all. They're not always, but I. They're so good. They are good. It's like, guys, these are really good. The it's art is good. Me, someone, uh, Robert Evans, who reports. Uh, what is his name? He's he's on Twitter. He's a big. He's very pro. He pretends that he's like just this impartial journalist. It's hilarious. He's completely in the bag with the activist and is an activist or whatever, and, that, and that's fine. He gets to do what he wants to do, but he put up something about me once, and oh my god, they loved it. They just went bananas. <laughs> I, you know, you can't possibly look at all these things, but I looked at a few of them. I can't remember what it was, but it was kind of a, it was just funny. Some of them were funny. Are some of them mean? Yes. Do you get like, you know, did I like getting followed around through crowds? Because I also have, I have pink hair. Okay. So like, I'm kind of not very pink, a little bit pink. You know, people know who I am. They, I'm, I, I'm not hiding. And, um, you know, I have people follow me around. We know who you are. We know who you are. I'm like, okay, so what? What are you going to do? You going to shiv me? You know, they want you to be scared, and I got to tell well, you're you, you're a New Yorker. They, oh, that was also great. Oh, I love that. You're not, you, you know, you're like, not going to back down to these well, hundred pound yeah, kids. That, but also, it's like, how you know, this, who is this Nancy Rommelman? She comes in here and she's this New Yorker coming in here. I'm like, I did live here for 15 years. I just moved out a year ago. Like, I know Portland. Okay, it's like when I go back now and I see what's going on in the streets and the homelessness and the drug use. And I know it's worse than it used to be because I lived there for 15 years, but they don't know that. I don't care. It doesn't matter if they know that, but, um, but isn't it kind of funny how my, how things change, how quickly, especially in the news cycle, how quickly things change. Like instead of going, Oh my God, there's Nancy Rommelman who had, who was the, um, me neither from Ristretto Roasters. Mm. And instead it's, She's some new New Yorker journalist who's harassing us and not telling the narrative the way we're trying to craft it. I mean, it's so interesting how think how just a little bit of time, um, how well, quickly I, things I change. Kind of, I, you know, they did know who I was when I got there from that previous stuff, and that was not, you know, to their minds that was not a something to my credit. And you know, they try to drag that out, so they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about but that's fine uh, that's, in, that's well they the can't path. handle nuance like, yeah. they can't handle anybody I mean that is what is what I find so suffocating about Portland is that they cannot n- nobody here v- very few very few people anyway can handle a different point of view and in that in the me neither YouTube series with Leah from Real Housewives of New York now um Leah McSweeney, which I thought was fascinating because it was a nuanced, different point of view. And initially, the way the media was reporting about it, oh, there's this me neither thing. I had the same gut reaction that the the clearly the reporter wanted me to have. How dare anybody be against 
a sex abuse survivor, right? Um, but then I watched it and I'm like, this is just a different point of view than the dominant narrative. And I'm learning so much about these accusers that I didn't know about. And now we know that all this other stuff like Ozzy Argento and the yep. statutory rape stuff and the Anthony Bourdain payment. And, and now everybody's talking about it as if we've always known about it. And the, all the complicated Rose McGowan stuff. Um, everybody's talking about it as if, as if we've always known about it. But you guys were some well, of the first the ones way- to talk about it. The way it started is because basically Leah and I, she was in New York, I was in um, in uh, Portland at the time. We just were having this long text about like, you know, do you really, do we really think that Asha Argento is the best like face of Me Too? Because she, it's really complicated. She's got a really complicated backstory and now Bourdain had killed himself. We're just like, this is like, she can't, she can't be the, I mean, it's not up to me who the face of me too is, but I think it is up to me to say like, guys, like you, you have a good cause here. This cause has like incredible momentum and is, and has really changed the world in many ways, but you also have to be careful with it because something that is this powerful is going to easily be able to, to herald the right people and herald the wrong people because people are just going to be like, Oh yes, it's, and it's going to have the power to mow people down. And if it's going to have the power to mow people down, that we want to make sure, I would think, that the people with the lawnmower in their hands are the right people. Aja Argento is not the right person. So we talked about that. We talked about, um, we talked about like you can't, you can't have an Aziz Ansari be exactly the same as an R. Kelly. Right. Again, <laughs> it's just like going back to this is going back to it's like the nuance. narrative of protest. It's like if you have ten thousand people protesting. And 200 of them are doing terrible things. That does not mean the other 9,800 are terrible. It means that any movement is going to have things that are not great. It's exactly the same with me, too. And to say that that that's not possible is ridiculous. That's like saying all restaurants are good. All books are good. Well, they're not. Okay? So every single person that is going to be part of the Me Too movement is not going to be axiomatically 100% never questioned a saint. It doesn't work that way. That was not, at the time, that narrative was not allowed. It was not allowed. You could not say that clearly. Well, it wasn't allowed here in particular. It wasn't allowed in Portland in particular. I don't know, had you been in a lot of other places, like, like we talked about on the phone, uh, a few days ago, previous to this, Portland is, you pointed this out and it was brilliant. Portland is not an international city. It's hermetic. No, it's not. It's a, you used the word hermetic, which was brilliant. It is a bubble and yep. it is not, it's, it's frankly living here. I don't know how you felt, but it's, it's very suffocating. Well, I'll tell you why it wouldn't have happened too. Because like had, what had happened was, you know, we're not going to go into the details of this, but someone who was unhappy, who had worked with my husband's company, wrote a letter to the media, and the, and the media ate it up. And if that had been New York, it would never have happened. No. Like, I'm sorry. There's 50 bazillion things happening in New York City with 5,000 restaurants and, you know, 50,000 restaurant workers. It would, it, would, it would be a non-story. But in Portland, it was a story. You have to understand, too. I was, like, somewhat well-known. My husband was well-known. You know, I had a book out. It was, like, you know, it was easy pickings. But you know what? It is water under the bridge and is it possible do you think that portland doesn't want to be an international city is it possible this is all by design so we can be in our elite woke bubble that is a fascinating question 
Wow, that is such a fascinating question because I've written a lot. Like when I got there in 2004, it was like a still pretty small, but like interesting, like a lot of interesting possibilities, but also kind of homogenous, you know? Oh, it's the whitest big city in America. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, just like the kinds of people, like everybody wore fleece and, you know, had a Subaru and, you know, it's kind of like there wasn't a lot of variety. There was some, I mean, you can go out, there's like Russian neighborhoods and I happen to live in a little, a very black neighborhood in Northeast, but, you know, but then it started to kind of get this international vibe, right? 2007, 8, 9, 12. And I remember there was a point where, um, you know, everybody was writing about Portland, like restaurants and this and that. And blah, 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 blah. People were moving there and television shows. And so there was a headline in the, in the Oregonian saying, sorry, New York Times, we're just not that into you. You know, because right. Portland in a way, I think, was, was of its own volition becoming very shiny and very interesting you know it had some really interesting ideas but I think you're right I think there is a part of Portland that wants to be how do I say this it wants to be the best at what it does right it's bubble it's hermetic bubble it's you know read college bubble it's activism bubble it's you know whatever but it doesn't maybe want to compete on the big stage because that's harder. That's harder to do, you know, and I, maybe it's, and, and it doesn't need to, my God, I'm not, I'm not saying it should. Um, but I do, I think that's a really fascinating prospect. Do people want like real growth, real change, that kind of hard stuff um, that, that that's hard to do? I don't know. I do. I don't think so. Um, it's Portland exceptionalism. We love diversity, but we don't want anybody to look or think differently. And God forbid they both look and think differently, like, say, a Clarence Thomas or a Larry Elder. Now, those people are really threatening to us. Or Asian immigrant parents from San Francisco who don't like our, our ideas about getting rid of standardized testing. We can't tolerate that. Um, if you're in an identity category as a woman, if I were pro-life, which I'm not, but you know, let's say let's say I am, um, they can't handle a Caitlin Flanagan abortion article in the Atlantic because they can't handle the idea of a woman not being pro-choice. They they <laughs> preach diversity, but they don't practice diversity of of thought or allowing other people to engage in any kind of diverse thought whatsoever. They want you to have it, but they they want you to have diversity, but they don't want diversity of thought. It's like Antifa showing up to a mask off or an anti-mandate rally and intimidating people and still saying, we're the anti-fascists. We want you to keep your mask on. We want you to listen to the government. We want you to listen to the CDC. We want you to get your vaccine passport, but we're anti-fascists. We want to burn it all down. It's just, it's so bizarre. So I remember in 2017, um, there were the signs that went up in the window. Uh, uh, all are welcome here. You are welcome here. It was like everybody had one in the window. Um, my husband never wanted any signs in the window. Like not even if like our kid was had a ballet something. Like we wouldn't. There were just no signs in Rosetta's window. But managers were very adamant, so that went into the window. Well, what did that really mean? It, what it what it more was it was kind of like trying to be like a thumb in the eye of Trump because he was doing some pretty shitty things on the border. So I understand the sentiment, but I'll tell you a little story, which I've written a few times. So a different 
cafe, not not my husband's, different cafe owned by a friend of mine. Um, uh, she had a trans gal working at the cash register. She was not there at the time. And um, a, a customer comes in and he's wearing a MAGA cap. It's like 2017, 2018. And, you know, orders a coffee. So later on, the barista calls the manager and said, um, so this guy came in with a MAGA cap. Um, do I have to serve him? And the manager was like, oh, my God, why? Did he say something to you? Like maybe the guy was rude or insensitive or something. And, and the guy was like, no, but, you know, he's a white supremacist. And it's like, so what does that all or welcome here sign mean? First of all, the, 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 manager, the owner of the shop said, first of all, yes, you have to serve him. Second of all, no, you don't know he's white supremacist. This is ridiculous. So this all or welcome sign is basically a signal to people like you, right? People who believe like you, we're all here. We're all in it together. But someone that walks in who's probably literally like the father of somebody who's visiting his kid in college and he's visiting and literally goes in to get a coffee but is assumed to be a white supremacist. What, is, what does that have to do with all our welcome here? I mean, it's just, it's just absurd, and it's also so, it's so tiny of mind. It's so tiny of mind. And that, that actually really pissed me off. I mean, it's a funny story, too, but it's like you don't actually know how to live what you're preaching at all. I think that's a great uh, that's a great illustration of exactly what's going on in Portland, and they really believe that the majority of people. I, I'm a native. I was born here. I'm a th- one, two, third generation Oregonian, third generation Portlander. The majority of people here they believe that they believe that if you voted for Trump, you're a racist, you're a white supremacist. They don't think anybody no. normal voted for Trump. Or, or, or that anybody educated or anybody with any kind of good reason voted for Trump. And if they met somebody that, say, went to an Ivy League school and voted for Trump, they would automatically just think to themselves, well, that's because you're racist. So this is, this is, this is really, to me, the root of what is the worst here about that is the incuriosity. Really. It's so crazily incurious. Like, why don't you talk to people? Why don't you ask why somebody might vote for Trump because the fact is something, what was it like 49, 48% of the population that's a, of, of, of who voted. That's a lot of people. And, you know, for most of these people, it's not going to have anything to do with racism, but find out what their reasons are. You may completely disagree with them, or you might be able to teach them something. You might be able to say, okay, I hear you're worried about, you're worried about healthcare costs. And you felt that Trump was going to do this. Well, you know, I know something about healthcare and I would be really interested in talking to you about it. Like, why would you not do that? Why would you Why would you want to take half of the population and just write them off? And because you also, you have no proof. You have, well, first of all, you can't have any proof that they're all, they're all racist because, well, first of all, it doesn't exist. But like, if you're a young person, to be that doctrinaire and that incurious, I mean, this is just, this is, this is terrible. I mean, it's, 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 the best thing in the world to go talk to people that are not like you. It's the best thing in the world because you will learn and maybe they'll learn something from you. You have something to offer them. Maybe people are just scared to actually talk to people. Maybe they're just, um, 
They just don't have the courage. You know, they have courage to go break windows, but they don't have courage to actually maybe ask their neighbor. I mean, that's something like you have to go ask your neighbors. <laughs> knock on the door. Hi, did you vote for Trump? <laughs> you know. I don't think that's it. Well. I really don't. I, I think it's... I think it's this sense of Portland exceptionalism, and it's part of why they don't want to be an international city, because they think they're better. We think we're better than everybody else. We're, we care more. That's why we wear respirators outside, because we care about you, and we care about the, the elderly and the immunocompromised. We're, it's a show, it, masks may not work, but it's a sign of respect. It's a sign that we care. We, we care about people of color and BIPOC people and the Latinx people that we never interact with because we live in the whitest big city in America, but we care about them and we want to shun anybody who voted for Trump as a wackadoo to show how much we care and how right we are. I mean, I think that's part of why there's a lot of sympathy in this town for Antifa in a way that there really isn't anywhere else in perhaps the world. I think in part it's because Antifa just has a more palate, such a palatable narrative for Portland. Like, I, I mean, I guess I want to be really clear. Last night I did watch the Frontline, the PBS special about the Capitol riot, and I'm, I, it was interesting. It was great. I want to be really clear that I understand that the right commits, the far extremist right commits the most violence in this country by a lot. And that in a lot of ways, they're scarier. They're armed, they're organized, they're connected to the military. Antifa's like none of that. I mean, I think part of the reason they were deemed to just be a thought and or an idea is because they're completely unorganized. <laughs> Sometimes they're armed, but they're not like openly carrying in the way that, that the far right is. Um, and they don't like to tell people what to do. I mean, they they're that's part of why they're so unorganized and, and they don't, they don't, they're not into the military. Um, but there's, I think their stated goals are palatable to Portlanders and Portlanders want to be on board with the Antifa stated goals of exterminating the extreme right, helping the downtrodden. I don't know. What do you think? Have they helped the downtrodden? Well, I think they'd say we are protecting people in our city from white supremacists and, and but, but the far right. But, the, the, but, the, but, the, but that's, again, that's a phantom. Where are these far right people that are, 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 are hazarding, like, the woman at the library and the kid on the soccer field and the homeless? Where are these people? Well, that's the most interesting thing about Portland is that's not our problem. Like, I was watching this PBS documentary, and I'm like, they're totally right about white ex- right-wing extremism. That it's It's way more of a problem nationally in this country than really anything, any other domestic terrorist, not that, you know, I know a lot of people would say, how dare you call Antifa a domestic terrorist organization, but than any other domestic extremist organization. They're, they're, they, they cause, they, they create the most mayhem, they cause the most crimes, they're scary, they're organized. But that's not something Portland really has a problem with. What Portland has a problem with is Antifa running amok every single night, breaking windows for, for hundreds of nights. I mean, our problem is not what right-wing extremism. Our, no, we, we, in not. fact, we can't, even to, we can't even tolerate somebody voting for Trump. Okay, Danielson, he was the Patriot Prayer guy, right? Yeah, yeah he, when he was killed um, that same night, 
um, someone, not me, I actually wasn't there that night, um, had a video of a gal, a black block surrounded by, oh, I don't know, 18 or 20 people. And she was screaming and she's like, and I am not sorry a white supremacist was killed tonight. Blah, 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 blah. You know, we can take out the trash on our own. And I was like, yeah. wow, that's a human being. You know what? That just got killed. Like, it really I, wasn't I'm a thing. Over, I'm actually overcome talking about this. Not just that a fact I didn't know Jay Danielson doesn't matter. He's human be- he's a human being. He's someone's son. He's someone's friend. But that this young woman could stand there and 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 think it's great. Oh, a lot of people really said that. A lot of people said that outwardly. That professionals someone got shot in the chest. I'm sorry. Okay, that that is a death cult. That's a death cult. Okay? If you are someone that applauds death, you are part of a death cult. And you know what? If that's the way you are going to make the world, you better be careful because then you will have created this world. I've used this analogy a number of times. If you are a knife sharpener, if what you do is you sharpen knives, that's what you do all day long, you and your crew, you sharpen knives, you sharpen knives, you sharpen them, and then you use them on people, people you don't like, the ideas you don't like. You know, you you shiv or kill someone and and applaud it. If you think that those knives are not going to be used on you, you're you're delusional. You are creating a world where you celebrate the killing of other people. That's that's a very very bad thing to do. Well, I'm sorry, I, I really can get angry about that video. I I thought it was appalling. I think that's justified. It, I mean, it was it's like watching the George Floyd video. Watching somebody's life be extinguished Anybody. is horrific. Anybody. I was in Minneapolis covering uh, the, the trial uh, right before um, Chauvin was convicted. And I had seen, of course, I'd seen um, the George Floyd video, but I hadn't, like, sat by myself and watched it, like, the whole thing from beginning to end. But I was in my hotel room. And I did, and I just, I, I mean, I'm going to break down now. I just broke down. You know, watching another human being be killed is a terrible, terrible thing. And I'm going to tell you, anybody, watching anybody's life being extinguished is a terrible thing. Just like we have joy when a baby is born, we weep when someone, and I mean, when someone is killed violently. This is horrible. I, I mean, please, I mean, like, First of all, the young people of Portland could give two fucks what I say. I know that. But I have ended so many articles by saying, guys, kids, seriously, look toward the horizon. Please find some delight in this world, right? Don't be part of the death cult. I know they think they're saving the world. I know it. But but they're not. Okay? They they got it. There's just way more joy in this world and they, they have to be responsible for creating it. You know, it's so interesting because the Danielson killing murder that happened here in Portland, a lot of people just forgot about it. I think in part because it didn't involve the shooting itself and the victim. They didn't involve people of different races. It didn't involve the police. And it was on the news in the headlines a day or two, and then it was over. 
And then it wasn't back on until the shooter, who was a self-professed Antifa, but like you said, I think he was just like a really troubled, unhinged person, was shot by the police. Um, And then it it got revived because then it was like, well, were the police the aggressors? Again, this is just an example of the police shooting Antifa people. Um, Then it was revived. But again, it was short-lived and then it disappeared. And now in 2022, the conversations that I'm having with people with colleagues, with professionals, with neighbors, with who really even, you know, the my Antifa sources, really whomever, is about how, uh, you know, all this attention was focused on Portland and about how much quote-unquote destruction was going on, but really it was just the destruction of buildings. It was vandalism, and it was for a good cause. Yeah. And they had, yeah. they, they felt the need to protest injustice and support downtrodden people whose lives are being threatened by the police. And if it takes a burning down a building to do to, to fix that, so be it. And then when you remind them about the Danielson murder, a, a lot of people have no memory of it. I, I, they'll say, no, I'll, I'll say, well, somebody was killed during those riots. I mean, there, there was a murder. <laughs> well, in their minds, I'm sure if, if they think about it at all, it was on the, you know, it was, the, the right person was killed, okay? Had it been the other way around, had a Patriot Prayer guy killed an Antifa person, you can be absolutely sure we'd still be talking about it, okay? And we would be chanting his or her name, for sure. Absolutely for sure. Say, say his name, but, yeah. Yeah, but they won't. And then and he was, you know, I've, I've written about it. I actually wrote a piece called, you know, When a Killing is a Litmus Test, and it's exactly about this. You know, we uh, some people being killed is fine. You know, that's fine. I I don't I don't know how people live themselves that way. I think I that this obsession with identity categories and pigeonholing people who fit in those identity categories to think a certain way is part of the reason they were a these activist wackadoos were able to gain ground against the me neither stuff. And one of the reasons that the mainstream media or the weeklies, um, which tend to mirror the mainstream media that were reporting on it, their point of view is sort of like, this is wrong. Well, because these are two women who are saying me neither. I think if you were men, I mean, this is one of the probably, you know, certainly many areas that men have a fair amount of privilege, particularly white men, is they can just say whatever the fuck they want and everybody presumes that they're racist or sexist or whatever. But if a woman says, hey, I think there's some nuance to this Me Too story, or, hey, do, do you guys understand that, like, Ozzy Argento has been accused of statutory rape? Everybody's like, shut up. Like, how dare you question her? Are, aren't you on the side of all women? Have you ever been sexually abused? Like, women are likely to be sexually abused. You should be really worried. You know, it's just, it's your identity category. As both Leah and I have been, right. So, yeah, you know, you, you're not allowed to, um, you have to toe the party line. I think that that happens, especially in Portland, but, but any kind of identity thing. This makes it very, very easy, right? It makes it very easy. It's like, it's like being on a, on, a, on, a, on a sports team. It's like some people are in red, some people are in blue. We're fighting against the blue people. That's it. And when you, when you have this, it's, it's, it's very childlike almost in a way. It's like, nope, there are good people and there are bad people, and that's the way it is. There are good opinions and bad opinions, and that's the way it is. It's like, well, that's actually not the way the world is. It's just like like the analogy I give with restaurants. It's like, we love restaurants. Does that mean all restaurants are good? Nope. It's just like, I don't know why this is so hard to understand. 
Well, it's hard to understand because then you got to do some thinking, right? You got to put a little a little time into it. You actually have to have a discussion. You have to have to listen. Listen, the people that, that piled on me for that, that show, they never even saw the freaking show. It right? doesn't matter. Of course they didn't. They, no, it, it, they read it, a headline it, 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 in Willamette Week. Which was, which was, it's, which was, whatever. I'm not even going to get into it. Yeah. But it's like, what? If people, I actually came out, it was kind of a mess, but I came out and I was like, look, I, I had a podcast at the time. I was like, look, you guys are upset. Come on my podcast. Come talk to me. Tell me what you think I'm getting wrong. Let's talk about it. Nobody took me up on it. But this, and listen, any single person that's been through this kind of stuff, you ask them, it's exactly the same. I, I invited many people to come on and let's talk about it. They won't because then you actually have to discuss what's going on as opposed to just like sloganeering or professing your hate or professing like I'm the terrible person. You actually have to like sit down and do some work. And that's why. Why do that when you can just sort of get the result you want super quick? It's a shortcut, right? It's like that game when we were kids, shoots and ladders. It's like usually you have to go all the way around the board to get what you want. Oh, but shit. If I say this one word, if I accuse this person of being a racist or misogynist or whatever, shoot, I just I take this shoot. It gets me there much faster. Okay, so I'm gonna take the shoot. Shit, I'm not gonna go go all the way around the board. What do I want to do that for? Right? And it was very, very easy. And it's still very, very easy. We see this happening constantly. You don't have to justify. You don't have to bring the data or the receipts or whatever they call it these days. You just need to make this person be one of the bad people. And now, and also, guess what? Conversely, you're even shinier because you're now, you're an extra good person for exposing the bad person. I'm like, it's just so tiresome. It's like, okay, guys, really? Right. I just want to have a conversation. Like, let's, let's, I really, I might, my, my microphone is still open. I'm sitting here in the recording studio we built in Chinatown in Paloma Media. I am looking at four professional mics and a roadcaster mixer and I am available for people to come talk to me even and maybe especially people that disagree with me because it's fun and I will even I will mix the Manhattans and make some cookies so there I've tendered an offer are you still baking pies well I bake all the time I do I bake I bake all the time I had this uh, one reporter here the other day he's with Yahoo his name is Alex uh gosh why am I uh no Anyway, I can't pronounce his last name. Um, he came over. We were just going to have a drink and swap some books, and I made a spanakopita, and he's like, oh, my God, I ate three pieces. Yeah, I make a lot of pies, but I can't ship pies. Like I used to, for my sub stack, I used to ship people baked goods, but can't, can't, ship, can't, um, can't ship pies. No, that would be destroyed. So you're not shipping baked goods anymore. Did you bake at all when you guys, when, you, when your husband had Ristretto Roasters? Did you bake for yeah, that? When, yes, I did when he first opened. So, you know, he built everything himself. Like there were no investors, everything on a shoestring. I wow. mean, the dude did everything. He built the Paris Cafe with his hands. He learned how to use the roastery, roasted the coffee. Like wow. it was literally such a shoestring operation and we had no money. And so I was, I used to bake when I first got out of college and I still, I bake all the time. So I did, I was the baker for about, about a year and a half. And then we opened a second cafe and there was, I was a journalist too. There was no way I could do all of it. So um, we wound up hiring Kim Boyce who owns Bake Shop. We were her first wholesale customer. She recognized me on the street because she'd come from LA and I'd been in LA and we, she's like, Hi, you're Nancy Rommel. She's with these two adorable little girls. I'm like, yeah. She's like, 
I just moved here from LA and I'm so-and-so and could I bring you some stuff to try? Maybe you could use it for the cafe. And she brought this stuff. It was like she brought me jewels from Tiffany's. I was like, you're hired. And she baked for <laughs> us um, until we closed the doors. She's great. Everybody should go to bake shops. Oh my God, it's the best pastry in Portland. That's amazing that you were able yeah. to, I mean, that, parlay that into such a successful business out of a shoestring with no money, no capital, yeah, no investors, no, especially in Portland, because it's not none. like Portland doesn't have coffee shops. And to invent well, this from whole cloth, like this idea from well, whole he, cloth and learn it from whole cloth. like He did it all himself. He um, opened the first one in 2005. And um, at that time, there was really only one kind of well-known small roaster called mm-hmm. Sound, mm-hmm. And we literally had people come in and go like, well, why, why are you – why are you doing this? You, you, we already have some time. I was like, uh, cause I want to. <laughs> and, um, yeah. It might be fun to have time. another roaster. Yeah. And he got really popular really fast. He and did. People loved it. And the first shot it was, was delicious. Like, really beloved. And we had to close that one. And then it was, um, you know what? It was a really lovely business. It was our, you know, sort of the main stanchion of our life. But, you know, things happen. And so, well, you wrote you know, for Bon Appetit for ten years, right? When you were in LA, I yeah, I wrote for I wrote for I've always been freelance, and so yes, Bon Appetit was one of the places I wrote for. The main place I wrote for was the LA Weekly, but I've written for, and I'm still writing for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Um, when I was in Portland, it was harder to write um, for the National because there's not that much, not that many stories people want from Portland. Um, but I made it work, and then I um, and then I started writing my book, which is To the Bridge, A True Story of Motherhood and Murder, which some of your listeners will remember. It's a great book. I have it. Oh, thanks. Amanda Scott Smith, who threw her two young children off a bridge in uh, Public Bridge in 2009. I heard about that story, and that day started writing it. And, um, and that came out in 2018. And um, so, yeah. Anyway. Well, she, she – you know, I, I will never forget that story. She threw – those kids over the Selwood Bridge, yeah. and the four-year-old yeah. died, the boy, right? Yeah. And the seven-year-old the survived. Yep, yep, yep. A- and you wrote a book yep. about John Wayne Gacy, too, right? Well, not a not a book. It was basically, so it was an article that um, wound up on the cover of the LA Weekly in 2000 and, uh, no, not 2000, 1994. It was my first feature article. And because it was 1994, it was never online. Um, but, uh, oh, I don't know about 2015, a little outfit came to me and said, "Could we publish it and put it online for sale for it's like 2.99 on them?" Oh, that's great on uh, Amazon. Yeah, it's a that's a really good piece. Um, it was my first feature, and I kind of taught myself how to write uh, from that, and did interview Gacy on death row, and he was executed about mm, I guess eight or nine days later. Yeah, so that's up there. That's I mean, you awesome. really write about everything. Um, you're a true accomplished journalist. And like you oh, said, you, you. I read your New York Times. I read your opinion piece in the Times about Kenosha. Um, I read your articles in Newsweek, um, Wall Street Journal articles. You know, oh, wow. you're, I, I know you that you're... Homework. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think that you're great. And um, when I was, you know, I was talking to people about doing this podcast just kind of around town or whatever with neighbors... And they, their assumption is just like, you're, oh, well, she says this like right wing rabble rouser. And I, I'm like, no, she's actually an accomplished journalist. <laughs> a liberal. <laughs> she's, she's, yeah. 
She's um she was you were born in Manhattan and raised in Brooklyn, right? I'm like she's yep. she's a New yep. Yorker. She was in LA. She came here. She had a very accomplished coffee business and or her husband did and she's this journalist who wrote for like LA Weekly, Bon Appetit. I mean, people were bl- blown away by the Bon Appetit stuff. Um but I mean, I remember when you did the uh review about Saucebox. Like oh that's how far oh my I've been following you. Ask you a question. This is kind of sound because it's about me, but it's a, and it's not really about me. I I I'm, I mean, the sauce box thing was such an eye opener. It was so fascinating. Man. Yes, like, yes. Talk about her medic. The, the 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 comments I got were like, she's not allowed to write about this. <laughs> she's not from here. I'm like, you're telling me a restaurant reviewer needs to only have been raised in Portland. <laughs> To write about restaurants in Portland, this is like someone saying, "Like, well, you know, you can only write about who you are, right?" It's like, so I should only, so I would not obviously never have written about Gacy because I'm not a serial killer. I would never have written about Amanda Scott Smith because I didn't throw my kids off a bridge. It's like, <laughs> sorry, you write about whatever the fuck you want to write, whatever fascinates you. But I wonder sometimes if people in Portland, they. And this is, okay, this is completely, this is a blanket statement, and I really don't mean this, because first of all, I have many, many people I love in Portland. Oh well, my and you God, lived here for a long time. I love, yes, yes, people I admire and are great and are funny and do great shit, and it's great. However, I will say, after that softbox thing, and then, you know, the whole, what, getting slaughtered with, I mean, either, and just in general, in terms of success, sometimes I don't think they want you to be too successful outside of Portland. It's like, yeah, you know, you shouldn't be like, um, I don't know, shouldn't be, I don't know, shouldn't be flashing that success or anything like that. Like, I don't know. It's like, why do people want the world to be simpler? Well, I guess because then they feel like they know how to, in air quotes, navigate it better. It's like, but the world isn't simple, okay? Your neighbor who you might love, okay, she makes you pies She's an older gal. She she knit your baby booties, and you love her, okay? Your husband goes and shovels her driveway when it snows. Oh, and you found out she voted for Trump. Well, that's it. Can't like her anymore. Yeah, stuff like that hap- literally happens here. Of course. Well, well, I would hope it doesn't. I would hope that someone would say, wow, interesting. I really like my neighbor, and that maybe this is food for thought. Oh, no. No, you're literally written off as insane. You're just written, well, written off as completely I crazy. I and, and obviously, we're, look, we're, we're, we're using one big brush to tar an entire population. The population isn't like this. It's amazing, amazing people in Portland. And I will tell you, because they DM me all the time um, to tell me their stories of like, well, I'm leaving because I'm 27 and my friends are insane and I can't do the job I want to do here because whenever I pitch stories to, you know, the, um, the, or a media company I work with, they're not, you know, doctrinaire enough in one way or the other. So I got to go to a bigger city. I got to go to a bigger city where people want to hear varied, you know, points of view. Um, well, I think, la- of course, we're painting it with a broad brush. And of course, I'm, I'm being reductive. But the, the point is, the loudest voices are intolerant and are, um, they do want a simple story. And and they're not afraid to call you racist or bigoted or sexist or homophobic or crazy or unhinged. They're not afraid or a right-wing lunatic. Well, I would like them, then I would ask them to bring me the proof. 
I need to do that. I'm not allowed to just, I am not allowed to uh, print something without getting fact checked. Um, you know, we checked for my book uh, to the bridge. They checked over like 2,900 facts. We had to check everything, everything. It has to be airtight. If you want to come and call so-and-so racist, I would say, okay, well, bring me the data. I think there are people who are interested in, there certainly are. I mean, I have a good listenership um, and I get a lot of good feedback. And most of my friends are only interested in nuance because that's who I choose to surround myself with. But I, I, but they're also quieter and, um, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, they're afraid. They don't want to be called a racist. I get it. And they don't, they don't want the calories. They don't want the bother. I will tell you a story I've repeated. This is now like the 11th time. So you guys, your, your listeners, you may know who uh, Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein are. Oh, yeah, of they course. The, Dark Horse, okay, Evergreen right, College. Horse, but they were up at Evergreen College. And when the whole um, the whole thing happened with uh, Ruschetto, it was, it was devastating. I mean, it was we were watching our world. And in the meantime, my ex, my daughter's dad, was living with us, dying of lung cancer. And we're watching our world burn down, everything, losing everything in front of us. And it was... It was very, very difficult. And I guess we're a couple of weeks in, and um, I get an email from someone saying, hi, you don't know who I am. My name is Heather Hying. Um, I moved to Portland, and I just want to let you know that, you know, basically she said, I'm, I'm offering my hand, and if you'd like to have a cup of coffee. And I was like, yes, please. So we went and wow, had a cup really of coffee. Wow, that's really sweet. In a cafe at the time, there was a cafe in Schoolhouse Electric. I knew none of the baristas because I'd been on book tour, so I didn't know any of them. I walked in and they looked at me like I was Adolf Hitler. I introduced myself like, hi, I'm Nancy. And like, oh. Anyway, um, we sat down and she said the following to me, which has proved 100% true. When something happens, when you've been, you know, it's your time in the, uh, in the ringer or you're, you're being called out publicly or you're, you're being publicly, bad things are happening. So I'm going to tell you what happens. A few people stand by you privately. A few more, I mean, no, sorry. A few people stand by you publicly. Very few. A few more stand by you privately. But the bulk of people will sit on the fence and wait to see which way the wind blows. They will not say anything. And that is exactly my experience. It's also my experience of people that I've written about or friends of mine, like, for instance, Brett and Heather or Barry Weiss or um, Katie Herzog or any other people that have been called out publicly for being a racist or being transphobe or whatever it is. Um, and But I will also tell you there's also this weird silver lining or this thing that happens. You will also find people that you did not know at all which who will come out of the woodwork to stand by your side. And I'm going to get overcome again because we did. And those people, they stay by you to this day, you know, and, um, and other people fall away and that's fine. It's a traumatic thing. I totally understand people not wanting to, um, people are afraid of course. And they, you know, they should be, they should fucking be afraid. And, you know, they don't want your shame to splash on them or they, they have a sick kid at home or, you know, they've got a mortgage and I, I would, but I, I can't, I can't, I've got things I got to take care of. And that's fine. I would never ask anybody to do something that they didn't want to do. I will say, however, my peeps, my peeps, they show up. 
All right. They show up, they make the phone call, they extend their hand, they are the Heather Hines of the world. And, you know, those are the people I want to know. It's the person I want to be. Um, sorry to get off on a little tangent here. No, I think um, it's but, um, great. I love know, hearing about yeah. it. And I, it's, I think yeah. it's really inspiring. My and husband I, hates me talking about it. <laughs> he hates me talking about it because he really wants to put it all behind us. And no, it I is totally understand us. that. I mean, it's a long, it's Although, a long you know, time. you're in Chinatown now and you're doing, you're going to Ukraine. So. <laughs> I was? You're going to Ukraine, so fuck those people. Well, I think so. I think so. I mean, we'll see. Um, Michael Moynihan, who's with Vice News, he's one of the fifth column guys, uh, fifth column tapes at the studio we built here at Paloma Media in Chinatown. And, That's um, great. And afterwards, we're sitting and having a drink, and he's like, I think I'm going to go to Ukraine on Wednesday. I was like, with Vice? He's like, yeah. I was like, maybe I'll go. He's like, sure. So we'll see. I'm not really sure yet. I contacted a friend of mine who's Polish. He's in San Francisco. I was like, you know anybody in Warsaw? I might be able to work as a handler or a driver. And he did. He hooked me up with some people. So let's see what happens. Yeah. Do some reporting for you guys. Well, I can't wait to hear about it. And I can't wait to read your Portland story. And I just really appreciate you coming on. Nancy, this has been so much fun and so interesting and eye-opening. And I've learned so much from you. So thank you. I, I, it's a pleasure. Can I tell your readers, I mean, your listeners where to find us? so that they can, I guess you're going to have show notes, but um, if you yes, want to please, come, please do. Work, um, I'm Nancy Rom on Twitter, N-A-N-C-Y-R-O-M-M. It's palomamedia.com. Uh, please subscribe or even better, become a Patreon member. Help me get to uh, the Ukraine and to get to Portland and write more stories, or you can go follow me uh, or also go follow me on my Substack, which is just Nancy Rommelman at Substack or called Make More Pie. You can also become a, uh, a paid subscriber over there and help keep supporting independent journalism and Thank you so much for um for wanting to chat. And does Paloma have a podcast and a YouTube channel? We do. Oh yes, we do. We do have a podcast, the Paloma Media Podcast. You can find that wherever you get your um wherever you get your podcasts, you know, Apple, Stitcher, or wherever where they are. And we do have a YouTube channel, which has sadly been somewhat neglected because it's Matt Welch and I and we've both been traveling for like five weeks. So um we will we will get back in the studio tomorrow and record an episode for you guys and, and talk about what's been going on. We both covered the um San Francisco recall. I was at the recall party when the re- people oh, the guys were elected, and that was amazing. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep doing some West Coast stories for you guys because I think we're seeing some real political changes in possibly Portland, definitely San Francisco, and also LA. So those will be interested to interesting to cover. So. I can't wait to read about it, and I can't wait to tune in on YouTube and see what you guys do there, too. So I know you're really busy. Obviously, you have all these irons in the fire. Thank you for spending your time with me today, and take care. Okay, you too. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye, Nancy. Isn't she amazing? That was so much fun. I love her so much. In the show notes, we'll put links to Nancy's work and also her projects so that you can all follow her and find her at Paloma Media, and also on our Substack. So, big news, right? The Oregon Health Authority has announced that the rule requiring masks in indoor public places and schools will be lifted after 11.59 p.m., which is so odd, on March 11th. So really, effectively, um, March 12th. So, a number of things about this. I've been getting a lot of questions about this because we've talked about the permanent mask mandates on the last episode and what does this mean and does this mean we don't have a permanent mask mandate anymore and also questions about schools. Well, first of all, if you're in Portland Public School, that 
the masks are going to have to be bargained for in order to come off. This is from OPB, February 25th, 2022. And the headline is, Schools Wait for Updated Guidance as Oregon's Mask Mandate Set to End. This is back when it was going to end March 19th. They keep moving the dates around, I think, to correspond with things like the State of the Union so that Biden can declare the war with COVID over. So they keep moving that up. I, I wish they'd just end it today. I don't understand what the difference is between today and the 12th. But that's the science, right? We're just following the science. So in Portland, possibly Beaverton, I'm hearing, but definitely in Portland, there is a line in the Portland Public Schools, Portland Association of Teachers Union contract agreement. This is all in this OPB article, so you can find it, and I'll link to it in the show notes. There is a line in that contract that requires all students, this is from OPB, it doesn't say teachers, and in fact, they actually link to the contract itself, and I'm going to read directly from the contract. All students will be required to wear masks, except for students who are allowed not to wear a mask under early learning division or RSSL guidelines. So the contract says, not teachers, all students are required to wear masks. So the Portland Public Schools teacher union contract specifies that kids must be masked. So the OHA has no authority to break that contract with the teachers. That contract is between Portland Public Schools and the Portland Association of Teachers Union. And I don't do labor law, but my understanding is you're going to have to bargain for that. And in fact, that's what this OPB article says. To make masks optional, Portland officials would likely need to come to an agreement with the Portland Association of Teachers Union. Due to the line in the PPSPAT, that's Portland Public Schools and Portland Association of Teachers, contract agreement that requires all students to wear masks. So there you have it. So Masks may come off, but it depends on the contract that your school district has with its teachers. And unfortunately, here in Portland, that contract says kids must be masked. So unless we go back to the bargaining table, which they may be at now, I have no idea. But unless they give something up, unless Portland Public Schools gives teachers something else that they want, that they can bargain that mask issue on students away, that's not going away for Portland Public Schools anytime soon. So that's the school issue. Now, on to the permanent mask mandate issue. I took a look, and and again, I don't do administrative law. You guys, this is not legal advice. Like, if you, if you want to dig into this legally and gather some legal advice about the Oregon administrative rules, hire a lawyer. I took a look at the permanent mask mandate rule as a armchair citizen, and a non-administrative law practicing lawyer, so take that for what it's worth. But I do know how to read legal documents, and the Oregon Health Authority, this is this is fascinating. It's okay, I'm gonna tell you what it is. I'm gonna link to it in the show notes, so you can pull it right up, but it it's OAR 333-019-1025. I'll link to it in the show notes. So that's the permanent mass mandate rule. The Oregon Health Authority has etched into stone in this rule their belief that, quote-unquote, cloth masks, quote, block the release of respiratory droplets 
into the environment and can also reduce the wearer's exposure to droplets. Now, remember, the date of the permanent mask mandate rule, that, that OAR, Oregon Administrative Rule, that I just read to you, the date of that rule was February 7th, 2022. CNN's Dr. Lena Nguyen, again, CN N, on December 24th, 2021, said cloth masks don't work. She said they were never appropriate in this pandemic, period. Never appropriate for Alpha, never appropriate for Delta, never appropriate ever. Go take a look at that clip. It's If you haven't seen it already, it's just stunning. Remember last summer when we were together on the podcast and I talked constantly about Dr. Michael Osterholm, the epidemiologist at University of Minnesota who was on Biden's COVID team, August 3rd, 2021, quote, telling people that putting a cloth face covering on is going to protect you is not true. So many, many, many months after the alarm was sounded on cloth masks, and even after the wackadoo Lena Wen on CNN admitted that cloth masks are garbage, the Oregon permanent mask mandate says cloth masks are necessary to prevent against COVID. It's like codified into law. Also interesting about this Oregon administrative rule, and you everybody should take a look at it because it's governing, governing us. So we should all know what is governing us, especially it literally impacts all Oregonians. Even if they've lifted it for now, they can always put it back on is my understanding because it is permanent. It's not going to take the Oregon administrative rule off the books. That announce the Oregon Health Authority announcing that you can take your mask off, that doesn't take the this OAR, this Oregon administrative rule off the books. It's still on the books. So the mask mandate also says what we've known all along, it's permanent, but the Oregon Health Authority, the state public health director, or the state public health officer have authority to say you can take the masks off. I also looked at the permanent school mask mandate, that's OAR 333-019-1015, and I'll link to that. It states requiring universal use of masks or face coverings in schools is necessary, and face coverings also includes cloth masks. The Oregon permanent school mask mandate is similar to the general Oregon permanent mask mandate from time to time. They have authority to tell us when and if it's okay to take the masks off, but the permanent mask mandate rule remains in place so they can act without process and hearings. That's my understanding. Again, I'm not an administrative lawyer. If you want somebody to give you legal advice on this, please hire and rely on your own lawyer. The Oregon school permanent mask mandate applies to five-year-olds, kindergartners, if not yet five, and two-year-olds who use public transportation or are in transportation hubs. The Oregon permanent mask mandate does not apply to kids that are practicing or playing competitive sports, officiating a competitive sport that requires a high level of physical exertion for the efficient, or performing, including playing music, delivering a speech to an audience in theater. Any school that violates the Oregon permanent mask mandate rule is subject to a civil penalty of $500 per day per violation. And under the Oregon general permanent mask mandate, any person or person responsible for an indoor space who violates any provision of this rule is subject to civil penalties of up to $500 per day per violation. So my guess is a big reason we see all those mask signs on the doors of businesses is because the Oregon permanent mask mandate rule requires a person responsible, this is a quote, a person responsible for an indoor space to quote unquote ensure compliance and quote post signs at every entrance to the indoor space that masks are required unquote. 
The Oregon permanent mask mandate, I think, that rule disincentivizes Oregon businesses from removing mask mandate requirements because most businesses will want to stay in compliance. They don't want to be constantly affixing and removing mask required signs from their doors, depending on OHA whims. So the summary of all this is, my understanding is that we do have a permanent mask mandate statewide and in schools, and they don't magically go away when the OHA says we can take masks off. It's like a private school allowing a free dress day. The uniform requirement has not been lifted. If anybody has any information on this to the contrary, please let me know immediately. If you're an administrative lawyer, please reach out to me. But um, that's my understanding. And everybody should take a look at these OARs. And I will link to them in the show notes. Because frankly, it's dystopian that this is just permanent on the books and they can lift it whenever they want and they can put it back on whenever they want. And I expect them to put it back on. I don't think this is over at all. And I'll feel a lot better when this, when these are repealed, when we get a common sense governor like Betsy Johnson who has some chutzpah and can get the legislature on board or do whatever we need to do to get rid of this thing. Um, and if you're an administrative lawyer, I'm sure we can drum up enough people to get these things off the, get you to look at this and tell us if we can get these off the books. And I'm sure we can come up with come up with enough people to crowdfund your fees. I don't think paying you is going to be a problem. So please reach out to me. If your administrative lawyer wants to take this on and you um, would like me to publicize like a crowdfunding situation, if you're interested in that at all, because I there are tons of people who would be interested in having somebody take a look at this and finding out how we can get rid of it. And, and we can also petition for um, a, re- a repeal, um, but my sense is that's not going to have, there, there is an OER that allows us to do that, and I'll link to that too, but my sense is that's not going to have any traction until we get a governor with some kind of common sense and the political winds have changed on this. And just, a lot of that I think is just going to take some time, especially here in Portland where people are wearing N95s outside. So that is my understanding of the permanent mask mandate and why I think that although OHA is making it sound like it's time for some kind of celebration, because let's be frank, the political science has changed. The fact is those Oregon administrative rules, as far as I know, are remaining on the books and masks can be slapped back on us at any time. So in also in schools. And then it's also important to know that bargaining issue with the Portland Teachers Union. So that you know that you're not just going to be like sending your kid to a Portland public school without a mask anytime soon. That's going to have to get rectified if the district's interested in doing that. And they may not be. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Anyway, thank you so much. My dogs, my kids are running around. Thank you so much for tuning in to Rational in Portland. We love you all and we will see you next time. Remember, guys, this podcast is not legal advice. Do not rely on it for any legal advice whatsoever. Listening to this podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Tweeting at us or messaging us on Twitter does not create an attorney-client relationship. Emailing or communicating with us in any way over email does not create an attorney-client relationship. In fact, communicating with this podcast on any platform whatsoever does not create an attorney-client relationship. Do not send confidential or privileged material or information to us. None of it is confidential nor privileged. This podcast and its associated social media contains opinions 
interpreted as that opinions should not be construed as legal advice or legal matters of fact. None of the information given by us constitutes or should substitute for legal advice. The law is constantly changing and the information may not be complete or correct depending on the date and your particular legal problem. Each legal problem depends on its own individual facts and different jurisdictions have different laws and regulations because of these differences. You should not act or rely on any information in this podcast or from this podcast social media platforms without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction for your particular problem. Thanks, folks.